The passage this morning comes from Revelation chapter 5. You can find it in your bulletins. You can also follow along in your own Bibles. Let me ask you in the spirit of what we began last week, I'm going to ask you to read corporately some parts of this passage, okay? There's three choruses in Revelation 5 that the angels sing, so I'm not going to ask you to sing them, only to read them, all right? So that would be when we get to verse 9, when we get to verse 13, and when we get to verse, uh, uh, sorry, verse 9, verse 12, and verse 13. It'll be obvious when you're to read. I'll uh, pause for a second, and we will read together the three choruses of the angels. Would you please stand for the reading of God's Word from Revelation chapter 5. And I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. One of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went... And he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne, And to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Would you please be seated and would you join me in a word of prayer? Father in heaven, we ask this morning as we look together at your word that you, our Lord and our God, would guide our thoughts and direct our conversation. 
Would you, our Lord and our God, be working this morning by your Spirit within and among your people to show us more of yourself, to grow our affections for you, to create more and more obvious need of our dependence upon you, to make us more like your Son, Jesus Christ, to mold us, to form us, and to fashion us into a people for your own possession. Lord God, we ask this morning that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. For your glory and the glory of your Son, we ask all of this. Amen. I'd like to begin this morning with a quote, and it's a quote that I think helps form an important premise for understanding the book of Revelation. So let me read this to you, and I admit it's a bit complicated, so let me read it, and then let's talk about it. Here's the quote. The movement of time, according to the Bible, is from eternity, since it is created by God and moves out of and from his eternal decree that is from his throne. Because its beginning and end are already established, time does not develop in evolutionary fashion from past to present to future. Instead, it unfolds from future to present to past. As I said, it might be a complicated quote, but I believe it's an important premise for understanding the book of Revelation. So, so let me talk you through it a little bit this morning, okay? You heard the author there talking about the way that time is conceived and the unfolding of things. And, and, and rightfully so, God has created us in the space of time that we understand a very logical and linear flow of events that moves from past to present, to future. It goes something like this. If you think about the timeline of life, it moves from past to present to future. Now, I don't have to make the argument to you. I believe that you completely understand that this is simply human nature. This is how we understand things. And not only is this the way we understand the flow of all life, it's also the way that we comprehend causation, cause and effect. That is, that things happen in the past that cause things in the present that lead to things that will inevitably happen in the future. I'll give you an example of this in the way that, if you have children, the way we speak to our children, okay? It's not uncommon for a parent to say something like this to their child. Listen, you have to do well in school because if you don't do well in school, you're not going to go to college or get a good job when you grow up. And if you don't go to college or get a good job when you grow up, you won't be able to support your family. And if you don't support your family, you're not going to be able to have a good life, okay? Series of cause and effects. One leads to another. We point to something in the past that affects something in the present that leads to something in the future. And that's natural. Again, it's the way that God has created us. I want to suggest to you this morning, though, that there's something deeper more real, more foundational and permanent when we think about the course of causation, of cause and effect. Things that cause other things. 
I want to suggest to you this morning that as we read the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation suggests, now this is my picture of God's throne, don't laugh, okay? This is the throne of God in heaven, all right? That the book of Revelation will suggest to us that from the throne of God comes the cause of all things. Therefore, in one very real sense, we experience an unfolding of events from the future to the present to the past. Now, let me tell you something. This actually is not a very strange idea to Jesus. If you follow the words of Christ in the Gospels, you will see that very often He speaks about something very much like this. Let me give you an example of this, okay? John chapter 9. John chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. I'm not sure if you remember the conversation, but it goes like this. Jesus and His disciples came upon a man who was blind. Okay, that's John 9, verse 1. And in the present tense, they came across a man who was blind, and the disciples of Jesus, they ask a question of causation, okay? They say, Jesus, what happened in the past that this man was born blind? You remember this? What happened in the past that this man was born blind? So they want to know what was the cause of his being blind. And they have a suggestion for Jesus. They say, we have an idea. Was it he that sinned or was it his parents that sinned that this man was born blind? Okay? Question of causation. They've connected the man's sin or his parents' sin to the fact that he was born blind and now he presently stands before them as a man blind. Now Jesus could have answered the question in any way he wanted to, right? He could have said, no, you guys are being silly, right? Being born blind is a chemical reaction in the womb. Or, or he could have said, you don't comprehend the mind of God. Who knows whether it was that he sinned or his parents sinned. But what does Jesus say to the disciples? In answering the question of causation, he actually points to a future event, doesn't he? John chapter 9, verse 3, he says to them, not that that man was born blind, or, uh, sorry, not that that man sinned, or that his parents sinned, but rather that the work of God might be done in his life. See that? When Jesus says, rather that the work of God might be done in his life, he's pointing to future events, namely the event that would happen three verses later. Remember what happens in John 9, verse 7? Jesus heals the man of his blindness, Okay? That's the work of God that's about to be done in this man's life. Jesus essentially says to his disciples that the future work of God is the cause of the present man's blindness. He's pointing to a future event. Essentially that the, the will, the work of God being worked out is the cause of the things that we experience in the present and the past. Now listen, it may be a strange idea to you, but I would suggest to you this morning as we work through the book of Revelation that this is a primary principle on which this book is established, okay? It's a primary principle for understanding the Christian life that the primary source of causation flows from the throne of God and is being worked out in future realities that God has established now being experienced by the people of God in the present and in the past. If you don't believe me, just hang with me this morning as we work through Revelation chapter 5. Now listen, where did we leave off last week? We were in Revelation chapter 4, 
And if you remember, we, had, we saw a vision into the throne room of God. And I said to you last week, the door has been opened and John has seen the center of all the universe. He has been given a vision into the essential reality of all that underlies creation and everything else, and it begins with the throne of God. And from the throne, all reality flows, all decrees happen, everything that exists, exists from the throne of God. And if you remember last week, we, we began chapter 5, and we got to the part that goes like this. John sees God on the throne, and in his right hand is a scroll. And that scroll, as we mentioned last week, is a, is a portrait, it's a picture of the plan of God to redeem a people for himself that goes out throughout the course of history. And there is the plan of God to redeem a people for himself, and it is sealed with seven seals. And the question is, who is worthy to execute the plan of God? And you remember last week, John begins to weep loudly because there is no one who is able in heaven or on earth to execute the plan of redemption to redeem a people for God, okay? Now, this morning, we're introduced to a new, new character. But let me say this. As we think about a future moment, okay, a future event at the end of time, and we ask the question, what is God working out in the future that's unfolding in our present. What we see in the book of Revelation, I'm going to write it sideways, what we see in the book of Revelation is that God is making a people. This is like the, the purpose of the whole story. All of Revelation is unfolding towards that moment at the end of time when God has secured a people for his own possession perfectly, completely. So as we read the book of Revelation, we're going to see the unfolding of that, right? In, for instance, in chapter 6, the saints of God, they say, how long, O oh God, how long? And God says, until the perfect number of your brothers and sisters is secured, right? That's the making of a people. So God is making a people, and this is essentially the thing that brings him glory, to make for himself a people. If you don't believe me, look at what the angels sing to Jesus in verse 9. Worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals. You were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. They are singing the worthiness of the Lamb, for He's accomplishing the plans of God to make a people. So everything in history, everything in history is flowing from the purposes of God from eternity past to eternity future that will manifest itself in the last day of a perfect people for his own possession. This morning when we open up this book, listen, we're going to go through Revelation chapter 5 by answer, answering three basic questions. So this morning we get to verse 5, there's the scroll in the hand of God and what immediately follows it. One of the elders who is seated on the thrones around the throne of God, one of the elders says something important to John. He says, weep no more. So this is the first question. Why are we to weep no more? Why weep no more? It's very interesting. The words that the elder says to John, it's not simply weep no more. It's written in an urgent imperative voice, okay? So I think it could maybe be better translated as, Hey, man, stop crying. Stop crying. 
right? And he says, look to John, and he directs his attention almost immediately to a new character in the vision in Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5. Now, is there any question in your mind as you read verses 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 that this is the Lord Jesus Christ? That's an easy one. Of all the pictures that we have to unfold and to try and figure out, what is God saying? This is one of the easy ones. Of course this is the Lord Jesus Christ. We've got all these wonderful qualifying phrases, these indicators. He is the Lion of Judah, right? And that connects us to Genesis 49. Genesis 49, a lion shall come from the tribe of Judah. Okay? It says that he is the, the root of David. And we're not too far removed from the Christmas season to remember Isaiah 11. Right, the shoot that springs forth from the stump, and a, and a root shall come forth from, from Jesse, from the house of Jesse. Okay? It's the language that's being picked up on here to indicate to us this is Jesus Christ. It also says, John says, I saw him standing as a lamb who was slain. Right? And that should hearken your attention to John the Baptist's words. When John saw Jesus, he said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus, the Lamb of God. I have to admit to you, I don't know exactly what it looks like when John sees a lamb standing as if slain. I don't know what that looks like. I can imagine a lamb standing. I can imagine a lamb as if slain. I can't imagine a lamb standing as if slain. Though John recognizes it in the vision and he communicates it to us. Here's the lamb standing as if slain. Okay? And the lamb takes from the hand of the living God the scroll whom no one else was worthy to open. And he takes the scroll and he is found to be worthy to execute the plans of God for the redeeming or the making of a people. Okay, now listen, here here, first of all is what I think is happening in the vision. There's a point in time, as we think about the the lamb who is worthy, there's a point in time that's being referenced just before the writing of the book of Revelation where Jesus arrives on the scene in the course of history and a story begins to unfold and here's the story as it is uh, retold and accounted for in the Gospels. It goes something like this. Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary and then he lived a life where he taught the people of God, about God himself, but he did so in such a way that agitated the Pharisees and the Jews and the people who were over him. And he agitated them so much that eventually they killed him, they buried him, and his followers said that he rose again, that he walked with them, and that he ascended to heaven, okay? You can see in that telling, there's a series of cause and effect, right? Jesus taught and he taught against them, so they hated him. And they hated him so much that they crucified him. And they crucified him, and then his followers said that he raised again. Cause and effect. And in one very real sense, that's the way it, it plays out in the course of history. What we are seeing from the throne is, again, the reverse, flowing from the future to the present. And it goes something like this. God has a scroll, a plan of redemption. And there is no one worthy But for Christ to be worthy, he must overcome by his blood. And to overcome by by his blood, he must ascend to heaven. And to ascend to heaven, he must first rise from the dead. And to rise from the dead, he must first be crucified. And to be crucified, he must first live a perfect life and be hated by men. And to live a perfect life, he must be born of the Virgin Mary and conceived by the Holy Spirit. This is the unfolding of a plan at the end of time that is being experienced in the present day. 
And the people of God are at that moment able to see the perfect plans of God decreed from his throne, carried out by his son. And it's beautiful. Now, lest you think I'm just making this up, Peter speaks about this very thing at Pentecost. Remember what Peter said at Pentecost to the Jews who were there listening? What did he say? He said, this Jesus whom you crucified. Right? And you could step back and say, well, there it is, causation. They crucified him. They, they caused his death. But what does he continue to say? He says, this Jesus whom you crucified according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That's how he explains the crucifixion of Christ. He said, listen, there's a, there's a future reality that's being unfolded before us, and this is according to the perfect plan and foreknowledge of God. Yeah, you think you caused his death, but as a matter of fact, it was the plan of God. And it's moving towards this ultimate goal of making a people for his own possession. Listen, I'll give you another way to explain this, okay? From the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is a complicated book. And the book of Revelation is a complicated book. But actually, when you read Hebrews and Revelation together, they make each other a little less complicated, okay? So it's amazing how that works. In Hebrews chapter 9, listen to how the writer of Hebrews describes this, okay? But when Christ appeared, this is chapter 9, verse 11, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places. Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. Do you hear what the writer of Hebrews is saying? You might be thinking, well, when on earth did Jesus enter into the temple by his own blood? It didn't happen on earth. The writer of Hebrews is speaking again about the throne room. And he says that Jesus, not by the blood of calves or by the blood of goats, but by his own blood, he enters into the most holy place where God is seated on his throne And listen to how the writer of Hebrews describes this. Thus securing an eternal redemption. Right? That is what's happening when Jesus takes the scroll from God. From God the Father. Thus securing an eternal redemption. Now listen, two verses later, this is what verse 15 says. This is therefore then what is worked out. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. He's a mediator of a new covenant. That's what's in God's hand, the new covenant. He's a mediator of that covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. The writer of Hebrews is simply describing what we're now seeing in the vision in Revelation 4 and 5 that will precede everything that's about to follow. That Jesus Christ, the eternal second person of the Trinity, is worthy to open the scroll because of what he has done in the course of history to redeem a people for God that will unfold eventually completely at the end of time. It's a wonderful, beautiful picture, okay? So let me ask a second question then. It connects with the first. Why sing a new song? Why sing a new song? I don't know if you, if you caught on to the irony 
of what's being said in verse 9 when it says, and they sang a new song. Think about this. In Revelation chapter 4, we just read that the creatures and the elders, they have been singing a song to God day and night without ceasing. That means from eternity past, they have been singing this song to God the Father. And then we get to Revelation 5, and it's like, and they sang a new song. And it's as if the, the patterns that they have had for all of time have now been a slightly changed because of something that has changed in heaven, okay? So what's happening when it says that the elders and the creatures began to sing a new song? Let me tell you, they have always been glorifying God, the Father, Son, and Spirit. They have been always singing to them, okay? It's not as if Jesus Christ appears on the scene and is like, okay, now we're going to worship him. They have always worshiped the triune God. But what we see unfolding in Revelation 5, it's not a chronological story. It is for us a picture of priority. And now we see the word that's being used is worthy. Worthy is the lamb. The worthiness of the lamb is calling our attention to the work that he's accomplished in the course of time. Okay? He was always worthy of praise. But now they sing a new song because the second person of the Trinity following the perfect plans of God the Father since before the foundation of the earth, has come into the course of time, has condescended, taken on human flesh, and has perfectly executed the plan, and now he is worthy. That's what's happening as we consider these events that are being given in a vision to John. Now let me just give you a few thoughts, I think, from the new song. We're, we're looking into heaven and we're seeing perfect worship, okay? We are seeing perfect worship to God the Father and, and the Lamb now. And you know what? We can learn from the heavenly creatures a little bit about our own worship, all right? Let me point out a few things. First of all, I, I find it amazing how the worship here, it crescendos. It's building. I don't know if you noticed that, but it begins with the work that Christ has accomplished. And in the second chorus, they worship him. And in the third chorus, they say, they equate him with God the Father. Worthy is the one who sits on the throne and the Lamb to receive dominion and power and authority forever and ever. Amen. And not only is it crescendoing in the, in the subject, the, the voices are crescendoing. The first chorus was sung by the, the elders and the four living creatures. And then John says, myriads of myriads of angels joined in, which means ten thousands of ten thousands. The lights are brought up in heaven and there are the angels and they're singing the chorus, but the last chorus is sung by cre all creatures in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. Everything that has life sings this song to God and to his lamb, right? And this is, the, this is the, the reality that we have not yet experienced because Jesus Christ says there will be a day when every knee bows and every tongue confesses on earth and under the earth and in all creation. Okay? And whether they be uh, under judgment or as sons and daughters of the living God, they will all one day join in this song, worshiping God and worshiping the Lamb. It's absolutely beautiful. Let me point out a few things about their worship that I think would be helpful for us as we think about our own worship. First of all, did you notice that the subject of their song is God and not themselves? Did you notice that? It's very interesting, okay? They keep saying, you, you have done, you are, you are worthy. To you, we ascribe worth and value and honor and praise. They never, ever talk about themselves. You look at the sentence structure, there's, there is no me or us or we in their song. 
right? And, and sometimes we need that to help guide us through language, like as we think about worshiping God, but they're not talking about their worship and what we do for God or how we are falling down before you or how we are lifting our voices. That's not worship. Or it is worship. Maybe it's worshiping me. I don't know, okay? The subject of their worship is God the Father. If the subject of your worship is you, there's a problem, okay? So think about it. Second thing is they describe his attributes and his work. I think it's, a, it's probably a, um, a downfall of modern hymnology that we, we tend to, with, with modern worship songs, we tend to take one very ambiguous general thing about God and we repeat it a bunch. And we're like, well, this is easy. And we, we like easy worship, okay? If you read what's happening in five verses that are being sung in heaven, we, we learn at least 17 different things about God. Isn't that amazing? You get done singing this song in Revelation chapter 5 and you're going to say, Man, I did not know how incomprehensible is the living God. This is amazing. And so their worship is, in that way, it's pedagogical. It instructs them about the living God. They learn and they grow, right? And so that's the second thing we see. Third thing we see is what is the, the primary instrument involved in heavenly worship. They do have harps there, which is great. I love that. That's verse 8. But the primary instrument always in worshiping the Lord God is the voice. It's the instrument that God has given us, okay? And that's not to say, I think sometimes we, we descend into conversations about instrumentation when really what we should be talking about is, well, how has God called us to worship him? First and foremost with our voices. That's what the angels are doing. They are singing his praises with their voices. And I just want to commend at this moment our, our worship team. I think they do an excellent job of leading us to sing with our voices. That's what worship should be in the church. They don't try to replace our, our voices. They don't try to overpower our voices. They don't try to do instead of our voices. The, the goal of Jeremiah and the team up here is to lead the people of God into raising the instrument that he's given us, okay, that we would sing his praises. So that's what's happening in heaven. We can learn a lot from that, all right? That's why, wh why do they sing a new song? They sing a new song because the text says that Jesus is worthy, that he has worth, that he is worthy. And that plays out in the course of time. Now listen, there's a third question here. Why, why amen? You see the word amen, it happens in verse 14. In verse 14, at the end of this vision, it says, and the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and they worshiped. The four living creatures said amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. You, you, you may be aware of the fact that amen is not a Greek word. It's not an English word. It's a Hebrew word, okay? It's a Hebrew word that gets used by Greek readers and Greek writers, and it gets used by English readers and writers, because it's a word we find that we don't really have something like that in our language. So we just lift it and we use it. It's really good, okay? Amen basically means I agree, right? It is true. But it's, it is... It is more than simply a statement. It is a, uh, I'm saying with my whole self, I'm with you, right? I, I concur. This is right. I agree. I give myself to this, okay? That's why when we pray, we say amen, right? Uh, God's kingdom come on, uh, in, uh, on earth as it is in heaven, right? And Jesus says amen, right? That is his assent. This is true, I am with this, okay? So the creatures, at the end of this vision, they say amen. Why do they say amen? I think it's, 
there's two things going on here. This is, this is a transition point. Verse 14, if you haven't read ahead yet, you don't know this, but verse 14 is the transition. From the, the first part of Revelation, right, we categorize this as you know, part one of Revelation, into the meaty body and substance of the second part of Revelation that begins in chapter six. And I believe the creatures are saying amen because they are affirming everything that has just been said in Revelation five, but they're also affirming what's about to happen. Yes, God, we are here to carry out your decrees, what has been said and what is about to be said. Now, that begs another question then, what's about to happen? I think here at the end of the sermon this morning, I I do want to give you a little window into what's coming as it fits into Revelation chapter 5, because I believe it will help you to prepare for the rest of this book. What's coming? Revelation 1 was the introduction. Two through three is the letters to the churches. Chapters four and five is the throne room of God. We see what is at the core of all that exists, the causation of everything that comes to pass. And then we get to Revelation chapter six through chapter 16. And this is, if you've been like reading Revelation, you're thinking, where are the things that I thought were in Revelation? Where are the horsemen? Where's the, the beast that comes from the sea? Where's the third of the earth that gets destroyed? It's about to happen in chapter six through 16, Okay. And so as we read, we're about to see the substance of the book of Revelation, and it unfolds like this. Seven seals that are broken on the scroll, seven trumpets that are blown by the angels, and seven bowls of the wrath of God that are poured out, right? Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. And let me tell you something. As we think about the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls, This is the confusing part where everyone tries to come up with creative ideas on how these things fit together. And I think one of the common misunderstandings that happens with the book of Revelation is we try to conceive of these things as all one chronological ordering of events. So we say, okay, well, seven seals must come first, and that's when there's uh, famine and sickness and there's like one world government, and then there's a pause, and then we get the trumpets. Okay, so then a third of the earth is destroyed, and, and then there's two witnesses, and there's the securing of the 144,000. Then the beast comes from the sea, and then we get seven bowls. And in that, we see a lot of repetition of the same thing. And we try to make a chronological story of all these things, and what we end up with is a jarbled mess. I'll be honest with you. A jarbled mess, right? Have you ever seen an interpretation of Revelation that looks like a jarbled mess? Shake your head if you have. Yeah, good. They try to map it out in a 17-page timeline, and, uh, and you realize that you got lost at, like, the second point, okay? I, I have to tell you, that's not this book. And I, one very important reason why. This book is given by God through John the Apostle, written down to be read aloud in the churches. You can't tell me that the audience that was designed to hear this, not even see it written down, that the audience that was designed to hear this would be able to do all the calculations that are required to understand the unfolding of all those events. Like the square root of 144,000 plus the thousand minus the seven and the duplicate sevens gets us to the understanding of what's happening in Revelation. You can't tell me that, right? It has to be much more simple than that especially concerning the fact that God gives us this letter and he says, blessed are those who hear and do what is written in this. Especially because I told you at the beginning of this, even a child can understand the book of Revelation. What's happening with the seals, the trumpets, 
and the bowls. Well, let me tell you what I think is happening. I believe as we read about the seals and then the trumpets and then the bowls, I believe we are seeing three different perspectives of the same reality. One author said it like this, we're getting three camera angles of the same event. So we're getting a camera that's up there and a camera that's over there and and one from the floor. And we're looking at the same event, but we're seeing three different angles of it. And so what we're going to see as we read through the seals and the trumpets and the bowls, we're going to see different things that are brought out because we're getting a different angle of the same event. So we'll go through the trumpets and we'll be like, oh, interesting. I didn't see that when I read the seals. There's a new thing that I didn't catch in the trumpets, but I saw it in the bowls, okay? And the seals and the trumpets and the bowls are essentially God's word to his people that this is what you will experience from the resurrection of Christ until the return of Christ, okay? It is a story of the trials and the suffering of the church, the judgment of God on wayward sinners until the return of Christ. Listen, this is how it goes, okay? The revelation of Jesus Christ to John starts with a series of one to five, okay? Of one to five. And in one to five, in one to five seals, in one to five trumpets, in one to five bowls, we will see a lot of trials, okay? And we're going to talk about those. A lot of trials. You remember it. The horsemen ride forth and they carry pestilence and they carry famine and they carry sickness, okay? They're coming from the throne of God. The seals are being broken by Christ. The plan is being unfolded and here comes the messengers of God bringing these things and they bring trials. Now just hold that in your mind for a second. When we get to the sixth, the sixth bowl and the sixth trumpet and the sixth seal, we see a culmination. The sixth is like the, the worst of it. Man, it is really bad in the sixth. But at the same time, always in the sixth, the seal, the trumpet, the bowl, there, in a, there is an assurance to the people of God. God is always saying, I am with you. Right? The sixth seal, the people cry out. They say, how long, O Lord? And he says, just a little while longer. I am with you. Right? So the sixth is the culmination the culmination of those trials and the assurance of God. When we get to the seventh, you know what happens in the seventh? The seventh is the second coming of Christ. Think about this. How could these be three separate events? The seventh seal is broken. It says there's silence in heaven for about a half an hour. And they're all waiting on this moment. It's, it's leading to the second coming of Christ. The seventh trumpet is blown. And what does the angel say after he blows the seventh trumpet? He says, the kingdom of this world is now the kingdom of our Lord. It's the second coming of Christ. This, the seventh bowl is poured out, and then what does the angel say? The angel says, once the bowl is poured out completely, the angel says, it is done. And, and then we pan, the camera pans now to the new heavens and the new earth, right, at the end of the book of Revelation. Isn't that absolutely amazing? But here's what I want you to see this morning, Okay. The question is, how is God going to make a people? And if you haven't seen it yet, the question of how is like a, a recipe. Right? This is a fine recipe and there's lots of ingredients. How is God going to make a people? Well, all of what's unfolding in the book of Revelation is the recipe that God is using to make for himself a people. Think about this. If the Apostle Paul was describing this, you know how he would describe it? He, he, if God gave him a vision, I guess he'd record the vision, but he would describe it like this. 
God is going to make a people through justification, which happens at the cross, sanctification, which happens in our trials, and glorification, right, which happens at the second coming of Christ. All the elements are here for the making of a people. God will justify them by the blood of one who is worthy. He will sanctify them through the trials that they experience in this world, and he will one day glorify them through the risen Lord Jesus Christ, who is coming again. That's this whole story. God is unfolding it before our eyes as if it begins from the end and it transpires to the present and to the past. And he is showing us the plan that he has authored from before the foundation of the earth to redeem for himself a people. And you know what this means for us? You know what this means for you and I? Think about this. God is about to describe the trials that we are, we're going to experience in this world, right? And the judgment that the world itself experiences. And, and so when we begin to ask questions about our own trials and suffering and tragedy and sickness and death and cancer, you fill in the blank, okay? When we begin to ask questions like, why has this happened? They're questions of causation, aren't they? And in one very real sense, they happen because of things in this world. But underlying that, why do, those, why do we experience trials in this world? Because God is making a people for himself. And the refiner's fire is designed to burn off the dross. It is meant to purify us. Okay? It is part of the ingredients that goes into the recipe of making a people for himself. I, I was thinking about this this week. You know what would be so interesting? If you, if you end up with a, a chronic illness, you know, many of us will as, as we grow older, okay? I think it would be amazing if you went to your doctor's office and the doctor said, hey, we, we can't figure out what caused this. It seems to be no cause. And if you said to your doctor, oh, I know the cause. I can tell you what caused it. God's making a people. He's got a plan. He's working me out. He's making me into the image of Jesus Christ. That's why I'm experiencing this, of course. It's causation. So even we think about you know, the, the questions that we might ask when we, we experience trials and suffering. Why is God doing this? Why is God doing this? Because we're here. We're not yet here. I mean, we're going there. We're headed that direction. We're going to experience that you know, in the course of time. It's, it's coming, but, but we're right here right now. What we're going to see in the coming weeks is, is that we will find ourselves in the midst of what God is describing for the present age, right, for the church, the people of God. We've been justified by the Lord Jesus Christ in the course of history. Now he's worthy to receive our praise. But we, we are not yet what we will one day be. In the meantime, God's working that out according to his perfect plan that has an end, and now we see it unfolding in the course of history. And it's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you, our God and our Father, that you are not surprised by the things that come to pass, that you are not limited by time and space, that indeed you sit outside of time and space, 
that to you a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years a day. And that you have planned since before the foundation of the earth, since before you said, let there be light, that you have planned to make for yourself a people. That this would glorify you to make sons and daughters, to make heirs to the kingdom, to make a people of your own possession taken out of darkness and brought into light. And you saw fit, O Lord God, to accomplish this through your Son, who is very God of very God, very light of very light, and who is faithful and obedient in the course of time to condescend to us and to take on human flesh to execute the plan of living a perfect life, of being crucified, of dying and being buried, of raising again and ascending to your throne for the sole purpose that he might be worthy to execute the plan of redemption. So God, would you make us your people who now live in this world, a broken world, filled with sin. Would you make us willing to join our voices with the heavenly choir to glorify you in all that we say and do. For Worthy is the one who sits on the throne and worthy is the lamb to receive praise and glory and honor and dominion forever and ever. Amen.